Hi, this is David Waxman, founder and CEO of Waxman, a strategy and communications firm advising the most advanced companies in tech and financial services. I'm here on the edge of NFT, a podcast that keeps you on the very edge of everything. Stay tuned. Hi, NFT curious listeners. Stay tuned for today's episode and learn why Web3 firm Waxman believes the borderless future belongs to the fearless. Plus how a simple napkin holder can hold a special place in someone's heart. And finally, discover how Blur is turning the world of NFTs into a digital pawn shop with their lending platform, Blend. All this and more on today's episode. Also, our awesome community gathering, Outer Edge LA, recently returned to Los Angeles in March of 2023. If you think you missed out, well, you can still catch up on all the interactive experiences, discussions, presentations, and more by heading over to watch.outeredge.live and signing up with your email address to get a full recap of over 60 captivating conversations and performances. It's time to Outer Edge and chill. Welcome to The Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features David Waxman, the CEO and co-founder of Waxman, the platform that can help companies in all stages. David Waxman is the CEO and founder of Waxman, the world's largest communications firm specializing in Web3, decentralized finance, fintech, and emerging tech. As one of the earliest and highest profile PR professionals in blockchain, David has helped to shape the way traditional media outlets view the industry. He has advised dozens of the companies that are pioneers in the blockchain sector, including Cardano, Ripple, Polkadot, Maker, Avalanche, Cosmos, Chainlink, Stellar, Filecoin, Decentraland, Hedera, and Tezos. Waxman is a leading global strategy, marketing, and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive tech, finance, fintech, and venture capital. David, welcome to Edge of NFT. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and it's great to have you, David. And I feel like I've run into you all over the country since Outer Edge LA for our listeners at home, for full disclosure, Waxman has been an incredible ecosystem partner for Edge Up Company over the last two years. And then we, of course, we run into each other in Miami at the events there in Austin and so on and so forth. So it's like having a, an old friend on the show, David. I mean, I totally think the same thing, Josh. And also the audience should know, in addition to meeting up here in the States, we've hung out all over the world together, going to the premier events everywhere. It's been fun. Absolutely. Shout out to a dear friend of ours, Ron, for making the intro back in the day when we were in the precipice of sort of planning our first big marquee event. And I appreciate it, David, that when we share our vision, you were all in. And being early is part of the fun of blockchain industry. And Waxman's also been really early to the party in helping so many different companies establish and defend their industry position, take advantage of new opportunities, deal with challenges. There's no shortage of those in our space and create a more sustainable sort of level of brand awareness. Let's jump into how you got started in this business. I've never asked you this question in all the time that we've known each other, and it's a fun one. So what's the genesis of all this for you in the firm? It's not dissimilar, Josh, from how you and I met 
in person for the first time. I was at a tech party in New York in early 2014. This is just after the Mt. Gox disaster had kind of taken down the reputation of the entire Bitcoin industry. And I met the CEO of one of the first VC-backed Bitcoin exchanges. It's called CoinSetter, or at least it was. Jaron Lucas, the CEO, was this really charming, engaging, brilliant young man. And he had this, well, Bitcoin exchange. They were one of, I'd say, the top 10 largest Bitcoin exchanges in the United States. And they had gotten some money from Barry Silbert, who of course now is legendary among others. And they were looking to stand out in a market where they were selling the same exact product as every other Bitcoin exchange in the world. You could only buy and sell Bitcoin at the time. That's how these things worked. And so the differences were based on trading volume, which is like liquidity and the ability to actually go and buy and sell large orders quickly, execution, whether the price was correct, things like that. So those were kind of like the business things, triggers for why a customer would use an exchange. But reputation and brand is something different. They hadn't really established that. So I got to work with Jaron from that point forward, from early 2014. And we worked together for about a year shaping the Coinsetter brand. They were one of my clients at an older PR agency. And after about a year of working together, and we were kind of cleaning the clocks of every other exchange worldwide. This is before even Gemini had come into the market, but the competitors were like Coinbase, Bitstamp, some of these early exchanges. And we were doing better, I'd say, in terms of media coverage. Jaron said, David, what are you doing? You love this industry. You need to work in it full time. And so I went and brought in a, well, a mining pool, a hardware wallet, a software wallet, a VC fund, and an ATM network. And I started Waxman as the first truly professional communications firm in the space. I do want to say that there was an individual, Michael Turpin, who was doing it before me, but Michael really has become much more of an investor and he's a dear friend, whereas Waxman really has become a professional services firm focusing on Bitcoin and then later on the blockchain and Web3 spaces. But it all started in a bar and just asking a lot of questions. I love that. Yeah. And we know Michael Turpin really well. Who doesn't in the space? He's a staple in our industry. And it may or may not have been a push-up contest on the roof of his penthouse in Puerto Rico at one said moment in the history of Edge of Company. Never get into a push-up contest with Michael Turpin in a rooftop in Puerto Rico. That's all I have to say. It's a life lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. A fascinating story and a real sort of organic start to it, which a lot of things are that way in this space, this kind of organic start where things just sort of coalesce and come together. And of course, there's a lot of ambition and hard work, but the sort of organic growth of things feels very natural. And the momentum in the industry sort of bears witness to that. So you founded things with this specific vision here to support folks that are basically entrepreneurs, they're founders risk takers, as we can see, as you get into these new markets, it is a bit risky, but those type of folks that risk big, but can win big, right? Because they're doing some really monumental things, laying the foundation for the future. So tell us a little bit more about the vision right here, as you formed the company, as you mentioned in the Web3 blockchain space and kind of where you saw things going from where you started with it, what you just laid the groundwork for. Well, so when we started the company or when I started, I should say back in 2015, it was the kind of tail end of a two-year bear market. After Gox, things slid for two years. Bitcoin price went down. There was no Ether trading. The top 10 coins were very different then than they are today. And there were a lot of people claiming that Bitcoin was dead. And I remember going to a conference in San Diego. It's called Inside Bitcoin San Diego at the end of 2015. It was in December. And it was in this cavernous space, just gigantic venue. And there was like all of these white round tables like that you might have at a picnic but they were inside an area that looked like an aircraft hangar. 
and there were only four booths at the entire conference. There were actually a pretty good speaker lineup relatively in a joining room with a stage, but not that many attendees, maybe a couple hundred. But I felt kind of privileged to be there. They were listening to people like Patrick Byrne talk about the futures of securities trading from Overstock.com. Some of the people building some of the first wallets, like Paul Pui from Airbits, now called Edge Wallet. Um, some of these, are, of course, are dear friends within the industry today. But the booths were really sad. And if I were a reporter at the time, a mainstream reporter at the time, I would have said, Bitcoin's dead. And I would have shown a photo of that room, that huge room with just four booths and all those empty tables. And I would say, this is the proof. Of course, Bitcoin wasn't dead. Because in 2016, crypto tripled. In 2017, crypto 30x'd, and we were off to the races. But the vision has always been help the founders, help the entrepreneurs, help the investors who are building out a brand new industry. And so back in 2018, 2019, a colleague of mine, Danny Fan, and I came up with the tagline for Waxing, which is the future belongs to the fearless. Because we think that our clients, the companies who are building this future, our staff, the 175 people all around the world who wear this logo, these are people who we consider fearless because they're doing something that no one's done before. And they're doing it bravely and proudly using like their conscience to make the right decisions in a time and place where the rules aren't fully yet defined. And that's really the vision is to go and help them out with things that maybe have never been done before. Sort of a follow-up question, which I think is a little bit intriguing and may not really have an answer here, but I'm curious on your perspective. You see these things emerge in, in the technology space all throughout history where it's almost inevitable, like I alluded to earlier, right? There's an organic growth that's just happening, right? I'm looking at this series on, I think it's called The Men Who Made America or something, going through like Andrew Carnegie, right? And, and Vanderbilt and the railroads and the steel systems and stuff like, listen, that stuff was going to happen anyways, right? But the right people had to come in and make it happen. So how do you balance like the concept that there's some organic growth that's just happening? Like you said, there was 30X, right? There was a 10X of these different things that was happening. How much of it do you see is sort of organic and natural? And how much is this sort of spreading the word in a very intentional way that you do a necessary part of the growth, right? It's kind of a little bit of a chicken in the egg story, right? How do you see that being involved in, in sort of the spreading of the word around new technology? Tolstoy's greatest and most famous war and peace is all about kind of how Russians, the whole cadre of them, were responding to the Napoleonic invasion of Europe and then eventually into Russia itself. And kind of the moral of the story, if there is one in a, a thousand page book, is that fate is much bigger than any one man, even someone as big as Napoleon. So I don't think individual people necessarily are driving the overall trend. But I will say this, Napoleon was the first one to do many of the things that he did. So too was Patrick Byrne. So too was Brock Pierce. So too were was Charlie Schreb. So too were many of the forerunners within this industry, the Winklevoss twins, who were doing things that no one had ever done before. As it turns out, they were part of a bigger trend. But we didn't know it at the time. The reality is we couldn't have said and predicted necessarily that blockchain was going to take off the way it was because the death knell had been stated so many times. I'm telling you, if you had read newspapers over the course of many years, you would have been convinced this was all a scam. Bitcoin's got to be a scam. There's no way. I mean, after all, there's nothing physical except for, of course, the miners and, of course, the people and, of course, the ASICs and everything else that goes into it. But they like to talk about the intangibility. What I'm trying to say is this. I feel like it's been our opportunity. I think it's been our privilege to work with some of the great founders in the space. But I can tell you from being there at the very beginning, when the sausage is made, it's not quite as clean. It's not quite as easy to digest as it is when the eventual product is finished. And we have spent so many hours dealing with everything from the world's most irritating crises 
in every conceivable subsector of the industry, but also product launches that just were kind of hard to define. For example, Decentraland. We have been spending the years, right? 2014, my old company, 2015, 2016, 2017, talking about these fungible tokens and kind of what they represent, what they do, what the teams behind them are trying to research. And then all of a sudden comes this ERC-721 standard. And there's this thing called NFTs that had to be defined for the first time. And of course, we're going to do this in a virtual world that people like to call the metaverse. And it's going to be done selling virtual real estate in a land that doesn't even exist yet that people have to, well, eventually, we will say, people spend their time in. That is a hell of a lot to say to somebody who has no appreciation of the metaverse, who's never bought an NFT or even heard of an NFT, or can even conceive of what fungibility is. Because back then, fungibility was something that monetary theorists talked about, and that was just about it. And being able to tell that story in 2017 was difficult. Telling that to reporters who would then put it down in a newspaper that would be read by many people and interpreted by many people, that's a very challenging thing to do. I don't think any of us realized at the time quite how big that industry would become, but it was a fascinating thing to do at the time. And as I said, it wasn't us that invented the technology. We did help tell the story, but we're one of many, of course, that have turned this into a gigantic industry. Yeah. And the journey continues. And I feel like you could take what you just shared about the early days of your firm and parallel it with where we're at today, where there's exposition of what we see on the inside in terms of the robust amount of building and innovation and sort of progress that's being made in the industry versus the public perception of our industry as led by a number of mainstream media outlets, as well as sort of challenges that have come through scams that would be scams that any industry would bear the brunt of and it would be impacted by, like, like just if you dissect the fundamentals of FTX and what it was and what it wasn't. So I'd love to have a broader sort of conversation with you about where we're at in terms of public perception of blockchain, Web3, NFTs today. Where do you think we are relative to sort of the history here? I think we're at a relative low point. So I think there's a lot more believers. There's millions of people who have downloaded software wallets, who have in some way interacted with a digital asset of some sort, whether it's an NFT or digital collectible or someone who's maybe bought Bitcoin or Ethereum or another sort of altcoin. There's millions and millions of people around the world who have now done that. But I think the perception at the reputation of this industry is down a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. And it's for very good reason. Some of the most famous individuals of the last few years turned out to be the biggest crooks. So you can't blame reporters who are covering this space. You almost can't even blame the politicians who are talking about this and trying to go and win elections for talking about this industry and giving it a bad name. Of course, you and I, Josh, we know very well how much progress has been made in this space, the amount of technology innovation here. The reason why I actually devoted all of my time into this space wasn't just that I was excited about Bitcoin. It was I just kept seeing IQ points flood the market. And that has not gone away. We have millions, in fact, billions of venture capital dollars have been spent building out zero-knowledge proofs and optimistic roll-ups, scaling solutions, and ways for us to go and build a decentralized internet with infrastructure, including storage and compute and GPU and bandwidth, right? All powered by blockchain-based technology. But again, when it comes to the public perception, it's much easier to go and talk about the mistakes of this industry than it is to talk about all the progress that we've made. Really necessary, important progress that I legitimately think is going to improve society. But we have to go and get past this somehow. I think we need to see some real wins, Josh. We need to see some major improvements and probably some things that regular people can do with blockchain technology they couldn't do before blockchain. And then once they had a chance to spend some time 
enjoying life with blockchain powered X, then we can go and tell the story of, well, without blockchain, this wouldn't exist. But we're not there yet. Yeah, I appreciate that. And Ethan and I talk about this a lot. And we as a company talk about this a lot. We're constantly trying to showcase and highlight projects in the space with real utility that are pushing the edge of technology. And before we have that broader conversation, I want to get your thoughts on sort of one trend of the day, which is meme coins. We got Pepe out there doing his thing. We got Turbo. I was at a fascinating IRL Alpha conversation. I encourage anyone that lives in LA to visit on Thursdays at Budsman Studio, which is, by the way, Budsman hosted our first live podcast. So it's a really special place for us. And they have these like this live conversation around sort of trends. And of course, meme coins come up and like there's two sides of it. Some people in the audience were like, well, it's all good. Like more power to it for speculative trading on Blur, for meme coins. It's all part of the fun and sort of nascent degen nature of our industry, which is meant for like cowboys and whoever wants to be part of it. On the other side, there's perspective on that. This is not good. We don't need meme coins right now. We don't need sort of leveraged NFT trading on Blur. That's not going to get us any further when we're trying to have this broader narrative around maturing as an industry and NFTs not being speculative sort of assets or digital collectibles. So are we going to continue to see this trend towards hybrid economies of tokens and NFTs? And is all of this going to continue to be splintered with sort of more, I would say, degen fast-moving projects that don't necessarily have a long roadmap, but they're a lot of fun. Well, I think we need to separate the two things, that is to say, serious projects and meme coins in our heads. And we need to do a better job of talking about this wide separation and the very, very tall wall in between as much as we can to everyone we possibly can. Because meme coins have been around for a very long time. Anybody who's been in crypto since 2014, 2015 saw a million Litecoin forks that turned out to be nothing other than kind of either fun on one side or scams. We've seen Dogecoin, of course, which has turned into a top 10 coin over time. We've seen all sorts of different projects. And of course, during the ICO era, we saw an enormous amount of scams and what are considered rug. By the way, Doge is ahead of Solana right now in terms of market cap. Right. Which is insane when you think about things. And without naming names, I went to an event at Consensus in Austin and saw a meme coin that is trying to create its own version of a metaverse. And I couldn't help but, well, kind of chuckle at the fact that we're seeing meme coins now being taken really, really seriously by the people who buy them and who make attempt to make use of them. But there are people who are actually building real things. For example, remittance tools that are far, far cheaper and faster than classical fintech or financial services. We need to be talking about things like that to the extent we can and not talking about Pepe coins. Because meme coins, as you say, as fun as they are, the problem is this. For those of us who are within the industry, we already know about this separation. It's pretty clear to us. But to someone off the street or to a regulator or to a banker, these things, they blur together far too much. And it's causing really, really bad effects. The fact that we're seeing in the United States, many companies lose their bank accounts because they're somehow associated with this industry it's really sad. These are bank accounts for companies that are trying to pay employees, that are paying their taxes, that are doing absolutely everything properly. But just because they're next to an industry or adjacent to an industry that has meme coins, we're seeing all sorts of negative effects. And that's why I think it's important that people out there who maybe did buy some of these coins and made a lot of money, that's great. Just make sure you're not talking about it in a way that's going to cause further damage to an industry that's already beleaguered. 
Yeah, I really resonated with the comment you made earlier about the influx of IQ points, right? I think that's one thing that is really hard to deny when you're at the outer edge, for example, right? And you're talking to folks who are literally astronauts, or you look like at someone like Stephen Wolfram. I mean, that's a name that I remember back from my high school days. One of my fellow students, his dad was like a mathematician at University of Chicago, and he was using mathematics to solve his algebra homework and stuff like this. And I, I watched Stephen Wolfram like build Mathematica from afar over. And more over than that, I mean, he's, this years. guy is a legendary Renaissance man. I mean, this guy is legitimately one of the smartest people in the world. And there he is, right? Yep. Created an NFT collection and talking about blockchain and the power of it. And of course, Vitalik in and of himself, such an incredibly intelligent individual. And so, yeah, it's really hard to deny. But it is at the same time, as we just mentioned, you might also see people that don't have as many IQ points. I don't really know how to say it in the terminology that we're saying. I think what the benefit has been of the sort of quote unquote fun side of it is bringing attention. It's like good attention, bad attention. I don't know. But it is almost like as we're having this conversation about the legitimacy of things, we also notice it can be a bit boring. (laughs) And so that's this interesting juxtaposition of making something very interesting about something that probably is ultimately relatively boring. (laughs) Well, I'll give you credit for that. That's certainly true. It's a lot more exciting and fun, some of these meme coins. But so too are NFT projects that are not in any way meme coins. They are fun. We saw art take off. We've seen decentralized music, which again, are powered very often by NFTs. These types of things and projects are very exciting. They're fun. They're consumable. But at the same time, they're not altogether scams that a few people got rich on, usually at the expense of someone else who's lost money. And that's what I'm really trying to say. Fair point. Yeah. Look, sound XYZ. I mean, you buy an NFT, you get a piece of music and you own that music. And that's amazing, right? And the artist gets directly benefited from that in a way that was never possible before now. So it's that type of stuff that gets me really excited. And I asked the question sort of anticipating your response, but darn, it's challenging right now when meme coins are doing this and then they're creating NFTs out of that. Like one out of 10,000 of these turns into a legitimate project and then builds a real community and then does cool things. But the impact of the 99,999 that don't do that is profound. Yeah, Josh, I think you put it very well. But back to the IQ points, Ethan, because I think you brought up something really interesting. In 2016, I met a guy named Charles Hoskinson, who was one of the co-founders of Ethereum. He was the first CEO. And then he later on founded this thing called Cardano. And I met him after he founded it, but before we had launched it to the world in 2017. This is 2016. I could not believe how smart this guy was. I've had a chance to meet or know Charles now for many years, and he might be the smartest person on the planet. It's just incredibly impressive to hear him talk about almost anything, the depth of knowledge that he has, the capacity to go and put two and two and two times to the exponent of 50,000 together and connect the dots. It's extraordinary. And that's why I think people like that are some of the real pioneers of this industry, the ones who are creating the platforms, technology that let people have fun. And I think that that mix of things is kind of the whole point of the crypto ecosystem. That's really what's been built. It's a full-on ecosystem. Everything from many layers of infrastructure and competing visions of what the future could look like at the infrastructure layer to, of course, things that any consumer can touch and feel and have fun with, right? Gaming is really, really important because people spend a lot more money on video games than they do movies by orders of magnitude. But at the same time, movies can't exist without, well, photographs and video cameras and film. And the same thing holds true with Web3 Gaming, which I think is really going to take off. 
it can't work without scalable layer ones or layer twos on top of it that work really well and seamlessly. Probably doesn't work without interoperability. Probably doesn't work without all sorts of types of things, even payments, which are very difficult to do between multiple different rails and maybe multiple different countries. You can't have a great Web3 game without all of those things built as well. I love that movie analogy because I think about like the top 25 or top 100 movies and it's a mix of comedies and like dramas and documentaries and all sorts of different genres. And yeah, you do have like the Jackass trilogy out there and a lot of people love that movie, right? And it's come back several times around and then you got Top Gun. But yeah, I think that is a nice analogy. I just think for a more volatile pioneering industry like ours, It's the jackass trilogies of the world that everyone wants to talk about and not the beautiful documentaries. You're probably right. But they also still watch Steven Spielberg, the masses, right? They're still seeing movies by Christopher Nolan. So I think there are auteurs out there that consumers like as well. And I think the same holds true in the blockchain space, where we're seeing people who are creating extraordinary things, real magnificent artists and musicians and filmmakers, creatives. These are the types of people who show up at your conference, Josh. These types of people are building great things on rails made by other brilliant people who built that infrastructure and are building and upgrading infrastructure too. Yeah. By the way, definitely not my conference, definitely the community's conference and a large team at behind the scenes that makes that happen. I'm just one of many folks puts that bad boy together. Indeed. I think it would be very interesting. And I think you're open to talking about just kind of the wider global sort of economic, political situation that's going on right now. I mean, I already had gotten into the principles book, Principles for the Changing World Order. I can't think of the author's name right now, but yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's so fascinating to see where we're at right now. And if you listen to what he's talking about, it's a very dark perspective on America and maybe the political situation and all these things. But from your perspective, as someone who's engaged in these different places in different ways, and also probably studied a little bit of history, where are we at here within the context of the global macroeconomic system? I think it's really important to note for everyone in the audience that this industry, blockchain, Web3, is as borderless as they come. We're seeing innovation happen absolutely everywhere. Everyone's competing at the exact same time in every single country. And It has enormous implications for kind of the conversation we're about to have here. Ray Dalio, worth noting, who's talking about the decline of America, and many people have been talking about this, well, since the end of World War II, was one of the earliest investors in basically mainland China. So he's had a really extraordinary rise. We've seen their GDP grow many, many times over since the 90s. And so it's really interesting to hear a person with a vested interest in a competitor of the United States talk about the decline of the US. Right. I think everyone should understand that the crash of the crypto markets in 2022, starting with the Terra Luna crash, happened just at around the same time as we saw the overall economy slow down and cool. We have seen interest rates rise precipitously. And with that, we've seen a heck of a lot less overall investment in alternative assets. What does that mean? Well, venture capitalists get their money from LPs, limited partners. Those limited partners are either institutions or wealthy people. They might be syndicates who then take some of their money and they give it to VCs and they invest it for the next seven years. And in a rate environment like we had before, where the interest rates were unbelievably low, near zero interest rates from the Federal Reserve and other central banks all over the world, the best way to go and make money wasn't to go and park your money in a bank account or a savings account. 
It wasn't to go and park it in a mutual fund. It was to go out and buy alternative assets. Public equities stocks weren't performing the way private equity is performing. Private equity has been doing really well for quite a long time and not anywhere near as well as kind of some of these really frontier, either digital assets or other types of alternative assets. We saw collectibles take off during COVID, for example, where Rolexes were worth many times what they were when they were actually sold in the first place because there were just very few of them and there was high demand there. Well, again, that's because you were seeing return on investment profiles that were very high and your risk-adjusted yields were very high. Well, a lot's changed. As interest rates have arisen from the banks, if I can go and get 4.15% by taking my money and parking it in an FDIC-insured Apple account, Goldman Sachs, I'm going to do that rather than risking something to try and make 6% somewhere else. That's not worth it when you have risk-free I'm saying 4.15 or 4.6% CDs. You're seeing it lots of banks across the US. And as a result, you're seeing less money being poured into alternative assets, including venture. And then those venture capitalists don't have quite as much fresh money to invest in things that they think are going to give them outsized returns. And remember, VCs are investing in necessarily risky things. That's why they're called venture capitalists. They might be losing on four out of every five deals or even more often than that. They might lose everything they put in. And so they have to make really enormous returns on that last remaining amount. Otherwise, there's no reason for them to invest. So again, we're seeing kind of this whole cascade of events that resulted in less economic investment into the blockchain and digital asset space, but more broadly into all venture capital over the last year and a half. This is really interesting. It means that we're not going to be able to see people with DeFi protocols that are really risky take off because people are going to say it's not worth it in this environment. We might, however, see really, really smart DeFi take off. That's what I think is going to happen, where, yes, you might make only a few extra points more than you're going to go and get for free from Apple and Goldman Sachs or from Chase Bank, something like that. But the risk is going to be far lower because the smart contracts will have been audited better because we're going to have a lot more confidence in the way the technology works, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think then we're going to start seeing more money pour into the space, again, from LPs to VCs directly into these projects, and then eventually from consumers investing in the space as well. So that's kind of how I see the macroeconomic picture. It is related to the overall reputation of the industry, but it's not one-to-one. The reason why we're not seeing the massive investment in crypto today isn't because of the reputation, it's more because of interest rates. Yeah. Why do you think that you can have Bitcoin, Ethereum having doubled in value since the beginning of the year, and it feels like a bear market? Is that going hand-in-hand with this interest rate thing? Or how does People that like comport? to say that's true. I don't think it is. I simply think we saw an, too much of a crash towards 15K Bitcoin and sub $1,000 Ethereum. I'm going to call it an artificial price floor that was too low. We saw too much demand to sell during panic times, especially as we got closer post FTX. People were just panicking. They didn't know where the bottom was, but I think it was an artificial bottom that set in. And I think we're seeing now closer to kind of the natural floor, if not the floor, then the relative floor for this market. That is to say this, it's a much, much bigger market today than it was a few years ago. Many more people know about this. And I'm saying that even without a plethora of new VC money coming into the space, we're still seeing near $2,000 Ether and near $30,000 Bitcoin. To me, that portends well for the overall industry's health. Even in this quote-unquote bear market, we're still seeing thousands of people show up for the best conferences in the industry. We're still seeing an enormous amount of discussion online. We're seeing tons of column inches of newspapers and magazines and online talking about blockchain, it's healthy as much as you possibly can be when your reputation's in the toilet. Yeah, I appreciate your candor, David. And it sort of brings me to wanting to think about the broader sort of 
trends in sort of technology as a whole. I've also have met plenty of VCs in the software as a service space that have said, I made one investment this year and I returned my fee to my investors because there's not a lot going on there. Yet there's this interesting creative convergence going on, right? We have the writer's strike. There's a lot of creativity happening at the grassroots level using technology like AI and blending that together with blockchain technology and other types of nascent technology all at the same time. You also have this other trend that you didn't mention, but I'm curious your thoughts on startups buying other startups and this sort of micro M&A sort of trend going on. So we take that trend, combine that together with sort of this real technology revolution that's happening on the ground. And I'm curious how you think that impacts the the broader macro economy and the future of blockchain. Valuations during the bull market got absolutely silly. As an angel investor, I was seeing pre-seeds with 60, 80 million dollar valuations. These people hadn't the closest thing to a product. It was a quote unquote white paper or a shell of a blueprint. And they were commanding these enormous valuations and very often getting big VCs to contribute, let alone angels. We've seen a compression of valuations ever since. And that has been really good for M&A. We've seen a lot more consolidation in the space. And it's probably a good thing. In part because, A, some of the trash is being taken out, but also because sometimes one plus one equals three. We've seen this before too. And I think that trend is probably going to continue all over the place, whether it's the now bankrupted lenders in the space being bought by either traditional financial services companies or by others in the space. We're going to see NFT projects merging. I think we've seen some of those already and more, a lot more of that, because what's going to happen is the cream will rise to the top and capital markets will simply do their thing, which they are right now. I think that's a really interesting trend, Josh, and we should definitely be paying close attention to it because some of the winners are going to be the ones who are picking up really good companies on the cheap. Tell us more about just the kind of day-to-day work you're doing for clients today that's getting you excited. What's going on the past couple of months and the next couple of months here? Well, Waxman, we're working with companies all over the world. So we've got three offices in the United States, three in Europe, and one in Asia. And I think we've seen an enormous rise in interest in Asia, in part because in Hong Kong, they've kind of reopened their doors to crypto, blockchain, and NFTs. That's been really exciting. We've seen a lot of interest there. We've seen interest in Dubai, where we've seen a friendly government set up. And then now in Europe, this is a kind of really new thing. Ever since kind of Mika was more or less passed, and it's going to take a little while for everything to set in. But we've seen a lot of companies say, we want to build in Europe. We are convinced that there is going to be some certainty here. We can sleep at night knowing that what we're doing is kind of within the confines of a rule set. We can make the requisite changes if necessary. And we're seeing an enormous amount of interest there from everything from layer ones to DeFi and a heck of a lot of kind of overall infrastructure companies that think they can set up there and simply comply with the rules clearly defined. Very interesting. And I know firsthand from sort of being in the trenches with you that you've expanded your offering from traditional PR into some other really cool areas like policy, marketing, advertising, and brought on some other heavy hitters to your team. Why did you go that direction? How does this influence sort of your roadmap and the roadmap for the industry moving forward? Well, I made some huge mistakes too, Josh. I think the audience should know. So in 2018, we started, well, it was going to be a separate company for legal reasons, but an investment bank at Waxman as well. So we got some registered broker dealers and we thought that there was going to be a huge trend toward M&A and capital formation advisory at the time. It was too early by the time everyone had their licenses and everything was set up properly. The crypto winter had set in and we're talking about a different crypto winter, not like Ether at $1,000 crypto winter. I'm talking $80 Ether in December of 2018. It was 
brutal. And although that fell apart, kind of I still think there's really a need for great investment bankers in the space. We stayed away from that. We decided to go a different direction. And we expanded into your point policy, building out our office in DC and hiring veterans from some of the best public affairs firms in the United States. We're doing a lot of that work also in Europe, where people who have worked in Brussels of the European Union and in Singapore, people who have worked all across APAC, kind of dealing with policy. We've seen those types of advisory offerings being very popular. Beyond that, marketing. We were very lucky enough to go and hire Josh, the CEO of Cointelegraph, Jake Cassano, to come join us at Waxman. And we're lucky enough to have a couple other people from the CT team join Waxman in a marketing and strategy capacity, kind of building out an offering in community management and social media advisory. We think that's also important because why get a placement in a major publication if you can't then shout about it on the internet too? Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. And it always sort of confused me how a lot of PR companies take a traditional approach to Web3, which is anything but traditional. It's so community-centric, and you have an opportunity there to sort of amplify the traditional messages through grassroots community building, which is ultimately how you build an audience and you build the monetization strategies with those in the trenches, community members that they care a lot, not just the media, right? They're the ultimate evangelists, right? The people who really care about what you as a company or you as a team are building. And one major difference, and Josh and Ethan, you both know this very well, is that if you have to go and describe a single characteristic to everyone in Web3, nevertheless, whatever their backgrounds are, it's that they hate people who are inauthentic. If you see any sort of traces of inauthenticity, or if you see dishonesty, I mean, it is incredible how fast the internet turns on you. And when we've seen traditional marketers or communication professionals come into the space and try their hand at this, they're so either corporate or so, I'm going to call it, well, they're not experts and it shows. And so as soon as they come up with some sort of message that just simply doesn't make any sense to this audience, we see a revolt. And there are some major brands who have had some really failed projects within the space because they simply took the very wrong approach. They didn't get community input. They didn't in any way interact with the people with whom they needed to have as their core audience, these evangelists who are going to keep working for them like surrogates in a political campaign. They never got their input and well, they paid the price. Yeah, it is fascinating what you've said. It is like jumping, jumping from all the traditional marketing things that are going on on whatever, YouTube, Facebook, Google ads and whatnot, and then jumping into uh, this domain. It's a totally different world. <laughs> different things work and different things don't. Just lastly, before we get to our quick hitters, which I think is going to be really fun, any other projects out there in the Web3 space that you're not working with or internal to what's going on there that you're like, wow, that's really amazing, especially maybe some of the obscure things that our listeners might not know about? Well, maybe not so obscure, but I'm a big fan of what people are doing when it comes to do X and earn. This is a really, really important concept. So one of our dear friends in the industry is the team behind Sweatcoin. And I was an investor, full disclosure, in the company. But I love the concept of workout and get paid something for it. Now, here's the really important point. I think, and maybe I'm wrong, that it doesn't matter if you get paid one-tenth of a penny or less. Better to get that and get some sort of reward that you can measure and feel than get paid nothing at all. So at Waxman, we helped launch this thing called Steemit back in 2016, which is probably the first serious decentralized social network. And it was purpose-built. The blockchain was created very specifically where new tokens and kind of an inflation tax method, we're going to pay out posters on the internet, posters to steamit.com based on their contributions to the overall protocol. It was really an interesting system. Over time, those rewards on a US dollar basis got less and less and less. 
and people complain like crazy. I don't blame them for complaining like crazy. And you can say the tokenomics were off or whatever other complaints you might want to have. But I still think it's better to get paid a little bit of something than get paid nothing at all. And I think there's going to be a lot of inventive other types of ways of do X and earn that are going to come out, probably for things that we've never even thought you could possibly make money or even a little bit of it get recognized for before. Yeah. On that point, we all have uh, credit cards that give us points back. And whether it's 1%, 2% or 5%, we don't complain, oh, it should be 20% because we know that's not a viable thing for a sustainable sort of economy for the credit card companies and for us to like make a difference. But we want to bend at the edges and not break those programs. And I think the right rewards loyalty systems will be set up for the right rewards at the right time and not over incentivize early and then sort of crash the economy. And these are sort of things that we've learned and it was a major topic conversation. Outer Edge, we had the head of tokenomics globally, Mohammed Ezekiel for Animoca Brands. And I think we have a lot of lessons learned from the last few years for the future of rewards and loyalty. And this is an area that we're also helping clients as well and we're excited about. So couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Speaking from someone who has a five-year-old child, we are an organism that can be motivated by stars on a piece of paper. <laughs> wow. So I'm you know in that mean? line. I love it. <laughs> yeah. You have questions about blockchain? Like, how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your back? Or if you received that chain letter, how did you block it? And does blockchain taste better, barbecued or deep fried? (laughs) Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them and also train you in real-world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy. If you're into those sorts of things, Blockchain Training Alliance is a top leader in the field, counting among its clients IBM, Microsoft, Disney, Morgan Stanley, and many more, and offering a wide array of technical and non-technical courses. Whether you're a computer neophyte training for an incredible career in this new space, or a coding expert honing your skills, Blockchain Training Alliance will help you steer your ship home safely, filled with treasure. <laughs> so hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintrainingalliance.com. Use discount code EDGEOF for 50% off and start your next block today. That was really fun, David. Lots of insightful things to talk about, but we want to get on to Edge Quick Hitters here and get to know you even better. So let's dive in. These are fun and quick way to get to know you better. 10 quick questions. We're looking for just a short, single or few word response. You can expand though if you get the urge. Are you ready? Let's do it. Perfect. First question. What is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? It's got to be a Twix bar. Must have been. Always love those things. Yummy. Okay. Second question. What is the first thing you remember selling in your life? Oh, this is a good one. When I was in fourth grade, I created my very first company where we sold, I'm not joking, rocks, pool rocks. They weren't pet rocks. They were everything from gemstones to just certain types of, I don't know, mineral formations that looked interesting enough. And that was my first ever business. It was very successful at the school fair. Very cool. Actually, I was just on a little road trip. I'm in Chicago area and I went through South Haven, Michigan to the little beach town there. But they had a shop that we just had to go in again. Shout out to my five-year-old of a store that advertised that it had like fossils and shells. And I have never been in a cooler store with that kind of stuff. They literally had a giant crystal thing that you could kind of walk into for like $10,000 or something. But 
yeah, on that note, rocks can be pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'll just add a tangent. I had a meeting up in Pasadena and I tried to convince my girlfriend to go with me. And she's like, oh, there's a rock show at the convention center in Pasadena. And I was like, all right, cool. So I dropped her off the rock show and this is April 1st. So she gets out of it and she's like, she's not a spender. And I was like, did you get anything cool? She's wait, like, wait, wait, well, when you said a rock show, did you think it was a concert? Like music concert? No, 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 no. I knew okay. it was a crystal and rock show. She gets out of the rock show and I see a big bag of stuff. And I'm like, oh no, what did you buy? She's like, well, I might've bought a rare rock from another planet. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. She's like, needless to say, she convinced me like she spent over six figures on a rock, but it was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> nice. I knew there's an April Fool's joke in there. Some Chekhov's gun right there. But yeah, she could have been a client or a co-contributor to your scheme for sure. She loves rocks and crystals. David, what is the most recent thing you purchased? A case of Fiji water. Can't have enough bottled water. Hydrate. Nice. It's good for you. Yes, indeed. And Fiji does taste well. Tastes good. What is the most recent thing you sold? Hopefully some services to a new business prospect earlier today. We shall see. Nice. All right. Yep. Working. Yeah, putting the vision out there. I hope so too for you. All right, question number five. What is your most prized possession? It is a napkin holder that I have in my living room that my mom got, I don't even know where from when I was a little kid, but it's the one thing that reminds me of my childhood home and I take it everywhere I go. The rest of my stuff could get nuked, but that napkin holder, that means the world to me. Interesting. All right. Next question. Number six, if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service experience that is currently for sale, what would it be? I would love to be one of the people to early on get to go to outer space. I think there's going to be a huge market for it. I'm not the only one, but I'd love to be a space tourist. There you go. One of the more popular responses, unlike the napkin holder, which has never been a response we've had before. How soon do you think it's going to be before we have an amusement park on the moon? I mean, it just sounds like, oh, let's go to Moonland, right? Isn't that going to be a thing? That's going to be so much fun, 100%. <laughs> and many people will die before that thing is constructed and fully built, but it'll be well worth it. All right. If you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would it be? Unjealousy. I was going to say curiosity, but I think a really good quality is truly enjoying when other people are successful and deriving some sort of happiness or joy from it. I really love watching people succeed in whatever it is they love. I love that answer. Yeah, that's a good one. If you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would it be? Impatience. No doubt. <laughs> it could be. You're very patient with the sound check before the podcast. So I think you're well on your way. Yeah, yeah. You've got a relatively zen quality for someone who could characterize themselves as a bit impatient. So you're doing good. All right. Question number nine. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? Oh, gosh. Well, I did a few phone calls with my team members, so nothing really all that exciting. But over the weekend here in Miami, that's my hometown, there was an F1 race and there was a Heat-Knicks game that was absolutely worth watching, I've got to say. So that was my weekend there. Action-packed. All right, sports fan. Yeah, it looks like it could be the Celtics and the Heat in the next round, hopefully. Though definitely not as exciting a game that I watched between them where we missed by like two-tenths of a second winning that game. That was painful. Painful. Uh, you also have to make sure and track our Web3 basketball team that we own, <laughs> which we're starting to do segments on the show. 
from Swoops. So we do have a digital basketball team oh, yeah. that you can keep track of. As today, we're number 96 in the rankings, which is higher than last week. Wait, who are the stars on your team? Well, we've named just one of them so far. We're working on the name of the next one, but we mm. do have Tron Stockton is probably our, literally our star player. He's a five-star rated player in the game, and he's doing quite well for us. And we do have to shore up the weak spots, the rest of our team. <laughs> but yeah, Tron Stockton. I'm yeah. rooting for Tron. Can I get a jersey? <laughs> we'll yeah. see. When we get some last minute slag, we'll talk about it. There you All go. Right. Fair enough. Question number 10. What are you doing after the podcast? No idea. It's Miami, so the world is my oyster. Oh, beautiful. I like that. Sounds good. All right. Well, that was Quick Hitters. Lots of fun. Thanks a lot for playing along. Hey there, NFT Space Cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm, fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com, it's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle, to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplace, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you DGENs who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls, comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe. It's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole enchilada NFT service can help you, yes, you, Randy, launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. Let's hit to the next segment, Hot Topics. As someone who's very acquainted with the news and what goes on there, let's visit a few headlines of the day. First one is the NFT lending platform Blend is sparking concerns over ecosystem liquidity. Sorry, the headline says Blend, but I think it's Blur. 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 Yeah, Yeah, Blur. No, it's Blend is Blur Lending. Got it. Okay. So NFT marketplace Blur has made headlines and it has launched Blend here, a peer-to-peer NFT lending platform that allows traders to lease out their NFTs to collectors looking to buy a blue chip NFTs with a smaller upfront payment. Holders hoping to earn extra money can put up their NFT, receive loan offers, and then transfer their token via an escrow smart contract to the renter for a specified period of time, similar to a digital pawn shop. Well, I mean, we've been talking about this. There's definitely been various platforms that are trying to do it out, David, let's blur. So it would make sense. It's a nice cohesion of an NFT platform to make lending available. It's a little bit different, though, guys, than what else is happening outside the industry. And 
I think it's a little bit more extreme, if you will, for one of the top marketplaces to do it, right? Basically, if you're sort of, if you're on the recipient side of that, you can partially buy a punk or an ape that you couldn't otherwise afford, but you don't actually own it and you don't get the airdrops from it. And you've taken out a high interest loan in order to partially buy it. They could collapse. So you could end up paying five or 10 times the value of that ape or that punk, depending on what happens in the market. It's a pretty high risk form of gambling on an asset class. I think folks like Richard from Manifold and others in the space, like Tom Bilyeu, are turning into a more sort of mainstream, everyone can afford this type of product like Sound XYZ we were talking about earlier with music. So I'm just going to vote not a good idea for our industry, not the right time, not the right place to do something like this. I think it's a fantastic idea for NFTs that were not so speculative, of which I think there will be many. Maybe NFTs that are representative of the rights to something where the price USD level, again, assuming loans are being taken out essentially for USD as opposed to denominated in ETH, for example, or Solana, that is a really good opportunity. If you happen to have something that's valuable, consistently valuable, you should, I think, be able, provided the tech is there, provided the regulation is there, to be able to go and get something for it. But of course, to your point, Josh, it doesn't work if the collateral collapses in value overnight. Yeah, I think consistently valuable is the key. And I just don't know if we're there. I mean, we've seen even the price dynamics of the most sought after digital collectibles right now fluctuate dramatically day to day, week to week, month to month. And so layering this level of risk on top of that relatively volatile economy, it just feels ill-timed right now. You might be right. I also don't think it's a very good business proposition to take your watch, bring it to a pawn shop and take out cash. They're called pawn shops for a reason. There's also a reason why they've got terribly bad reputations. It's not very good investment advice to recommend that someone do that and then use that money to do X, Y, and Z. Odds are they're going to lose and it's why pawn shops make their money. Yes. Yeah. Power tools, I think, from a pawn shop, from the buyer's perspective, I've always seen some interesting deals there, but I've never actually snatched one up. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Maybe estate sales is just a better option for things like this. All right, next headline. The SUI, S-U-I, NFT scene already has early buzz. Will it last? The SUI blockchain's mainnet launch was on Wednesday of the article was writing. An active NFT community is taking root. The marketplace is dropping projects that have sold out and collected yielded hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of trades, albeit some early hitches. The Mistin Labs developed layer one blockchain has been billed a Solana killer by some, but Solana boasts one of the liveliest NFT markets around, second only to Ethereum. I've heard just a little bit about this. David, are you following the SUI at all? Of course, for a very long time. I had a chance to meet the founding team a couple of years ago. Look, great technology. I think they've done a really great launch so far. We've got to applaud them for it. People who are working very hard to build out a brand new ecosystem. It's tough to do when you have so many extraordinary competitors on the market today. There's a lot of great layer ones out there that have enormous ecosystems that have invested millions and millions of dollars in building out developer toolkits and experiences for people all over the world to make use of their tech. As far as the NFT scene goes, it's brand new. I guess this is just one of the many things that can be built on top of this ecosystem as well. Interested to know though, what news source are you reading this from to go and say something like Solana Killer? Uh, Decrypt. Yes. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Very good. No comment. Yeah. I mean, 
Look, if you look at coin market cap right now, you'll see it took a pretty massive dive after launching. Not sure what tokenomics and trends are behind that. I think this is one of many examples in the space where the adage too early to tell applies. We've seen a lot of early stage technology projects since David's been in the industry and we joined the industry a few years thereafter that had all the promise and potential of the world not make it. And then other ones that came out of nowhere and quickly escalated to the top of the food chain. So I would be remiss to make a prediction at this early stage. And I think sort of the idea that this is a Solana killer is clickbait to some extent, given sort of where we're at in the market in the cycle. But it does seem like they're doing some promising building on the ground. And we would like to have them on the show sooner than later. And they are one of the projects to definitely follow in the space, but not with, I think, conviction this early, unless you're sort of on the founding team. It's just responsible to take a healthy perspective on these new early stage companies and overall what they're doing, not financial advice. It's always nice to throw that in. We've learned to throw that in. As the end of a sentence, actually appreciating the um, not financial advice Twitter show. That's just the name of it. Makes sense, right? With our friend, I can't think of his name right now. I'm bad with names today or I'm delayed on names. But anyways, all right, moving on to our next segment. So David, our next segment is the shout out. So we always like to give our guests a chance to shout out some interesting projects or collaborators or a person or group or whatever that's kind of close to your heart or worth mentioning. Anybody come to mind? Yeah, I'd love to give a shout out to the Blockchain Association and the Chamber of Digital Commerce. I mean, right now, we have some people fighting the very good fight who are trying to go and take it to Capitol Hill, talk to policymakers, and educate them on what's going on in our industry. Because as we talked about at the beginning of this segment, our industry right now has a very bad name and a bad reputation that's been caused by a few very bad actors who were mega famous, and it's having all sorts of effects on us. But we do have people in our industry who are well-educated kind of on the issues, who understand the process very well, who are working very, very hard on behalf of everyone with a vested interest in this space. So I think we should go and give those people credit. And this is advice. Please donate to those organizations. They can use the support. That'll give them more ammunition to go and spread the gospel. Cool. Those are some great ones. Yeah. They don't get a lot of exposure here. I don't think we mentioned them ever before on the show. So that's always great. This segment is always a great uh, resource for things that are below the radar that shouldn't be. All right. Just before we go, obligatory, where can listeners go to learn more about you and the projects you're working on? We've got to leave them on a great note and send them off to something new and interesting. Well, please go to www.waxman.com or check us out on Twitter or LinkedIn. If you're interested in a working in Web3, hit us up. We actually do help clients find great talent. It's one of the things that we do at Waxman. And we ourselves, we're always hiring too. So again, waxman.com, check us out. Awesome. Appreciate you being here. We've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. Thanks for exploring with us, everyone. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to Spotify or iTunes right now. Rate us, say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Look us up on all major social platforms by typing edge of NFT with no spaces. Start a fun conversation with us online. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great Web3 content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks, Josh. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. 
You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.